0: So I understand that today is uh, the Super Bowl. Is that right? Heard about that. You probably heard. And so today, it's uh, the Super Bowl. It's the Rams against, what's that other team? I don't know. The Patriots. I've heard about them. So we have, uh, we have a couple of uh, Patriot fans in the house. Would you guys stand up, please? And just, um, if you didn't notice... So, in uh, thank you, you guys. That's Tom Brady right there, by the way. He said, yeah. But you know, here at Trinity, we believe very strongly in church discipline, and so therefore, no, I'm just joking. Uh, I've already asked the ushers to escort them off the premises, and then <laughs> next week we'll have a new worship director. We'll be all good, right? <clears throat> but you know, it's an amazing thing to see the how this game has kind of been built up over the years. And, you know, the NFL, it's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar business and they do a lot of things right. And it's, it's a big spectacle. It's a big show. And of course, um, there's actually a game involved too, you know. It's kind of like it's the, the commercial Super Bowl and then they put a game around it, you know. But um, it's, a, it's a fun time. A lot of people get involved even if they don't, you know, um, you know, watch football throughout the year. And you always hear this, but uh, they talk on the news all the time, this time every year, about how uh, the Monday after Super Bowl is like the worst day for productivity in this country with businesses. So many people call out sick, and there's even this petition to make it a, a holiday, federal holiday. I don't know, pretty crazy. But um, but it's amazing, all of the spectacle and everything that swirls around it. And, you know, I was thinking just about um, all of the, the, the people that are that are there, that are taking tickets and selling the vendors like, there's an amazing thing that goes into some really good customer service, and you know um, Chick-fil-A, who is um, hands-down known to be the, you know the um, the retailer and the fast food chain that um, that has the best customer service year after year, they have a Chick-fil-A store in the Atlanta Stadium where the Super Bowl is, but of course today's Sunday, and so therefore they're not open. And there was a big uh, story written about that, people asking them, well, of course, it's the Super Bowl, so you're going to be open, right? And as far as I know, they haven't changed that. And so uh, all of the money that they could make today at the Super Bowl, and everybody loves Chick-fil-A, they say no, because it's Sunday. Isn't that amazing? So there's going to be one storefront that's going to be closed, and it's the Chick-fil-A. But you know, um, they are known for having such great customer service. And uh, before I got in the ministry, I worked many years in the financial industry. And there's a lot of customer service that goes on when you're selling products or you're, um, you know, talking to clients from around the world. They call in. They want to know what's going on with their account and their money. And uh, it's pretty amazing. But, you know, there's some training that goes into being a good customer service representative. And I think some of us, we wish there'd be more of that across the board as we call people. And we're like, where are you? And they're somewhere in the world, and And, uh, you know, it's hard these days to seem to get good customer service, no matter where it is, whether it's on the phone or it's in person at a store. Um, And, uh, you know, I was at uh, uh, Walmart. I won't name any stores, but I was at Walmart. And, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, you know, you leave there and you're like, I'm not going back to Walmart again. But then you always wind up back at Walmart, you know. And for the most part, I found, you know, good customer service. But I just feel like oftentimes there's just not enough people at the registers and we're all standing there you know and um and I just heard a report about how many like thousands and thousands of people they have working at uh, the Walmart's one of the biggest employers in the world and I'm standing there thinking I just need one of them just one of them to open up that register right there you know I don't need all all thousand I just need one but there's a lot that goes into good customer service you know and really what you're taught to do is to listen to what people are actually saying You know, lots of times we even make the mistake, we call and we need some customer service from somebody, but maybe we don't even know what it is we're actually asking for. But people on the other end of the phone are trained, or supposed to be trained, to listen in between the lines and to ask a very pointed question, what is it that I can do for you? What can I do for you? It seems like a very simple question and a great way to get started in a conversation you know, when you're trying to get something done. And so what is it I can do for you? And oftentimes you ask that question and then people go on and, you know, as I was doing in customer service for a long time and people go on and talk and talk and talk and then you realize they don't, they don't even know what they want and they're just going on and on. So then you politely ask them once again after they've talked for five minutes, what is it that I can do for you, right? But you're trained to kind of start reading between the lines, But being a good customer service agent means that you are doing just that. You are providing a service. You have a mentality of being a servant, serving somebody that has a need. And part of being someone with a servant's heart or having a servant attitude is to see where the need is and sometimes to read between the lines when people don't even know what it is they're asking for. And that's where we find ourselves... In our story of Jesus and his disciples today. Jesus asks the question at the beginning of our story. At the end of the story, it's the same question. What is it that you want me to do for you? Is the question that he asks. And he says it at the beginning. And he says it at the end. It's the question that sort of bookends our passage of scripture today. And we are in Mark chapter 10 verses 32 to 52. And so if you have your bibles you can turn there if not in just a couple of minutes it'll be up on the screen but it's Mark 10:32 to 52. And a little bit of background before we read it so we can all be caught up about where we are but we've been on this journey with Jesus and his disciples. We've titled our series on the Gospel of Mark it's called The Way, the Way of Jesus because we see Mark writing about Jesus being always on the way somewhere. But we know, of course, his last journey and ultimately where he is on the way to is Jerusalem to the cross. And so this is our last week before we get there, because next week in chapter 11, we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem and what we often call the triumphal entry. So these events for today are what really are taking place. And The events and conversations that Mark, the writer of the gospel, chooses to include right before they all get to Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was heading all this time. And so Jesus, along the way, is teaching his disciples how to be followers of him. What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it mean when we say we're a Christian or we're a follower of Jesus And Jesus calls his disciples, he has many other disciples, but he is teaching with these three, these 12 disciples. We're going to see a few of them mentioned today. He's walked with them for three years and he's eaten meals with them and had many, many conversations, more than we have recorded in scripture. And Jesus has invested his time and his energy and his resources in these disciples, teaching them what it means to be a follower. Because he told them over and over, there'll be a day when I need to leave and you can't come with me. And he's calling them to then be the leaders, to carry on his mission. And you know, today we are called the church, and our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to carry on the mission of Jesus and the disciples. And that is to spread the gospel of grace, to share with the world The good news that Jesus offers salvation, a way to be reconnected to their Creator. And that is what we represent. Do you know that the church, which is us, not a building, but us as believers, we are God's plan for hope in this world by representing Jesus Christ and sharing with others through our life and through our words and through our story and our testimony the good news of Jesus. So Jesus has been teaching his disciples all along the way all different aspects of what it means to be a disciple. And so we follow in the long line the ancient tradition of these original 12 disciples called to do what he is teaching them. And so this morning in our passage Mark 10:32 to 52 there's three separate little vignettes, three separate little scenes but really interconnected and bookended by Jesus' question, what is it that you want me to do for you? So let's read it together. It'll be up on the screen, and and then we'll go from there. We just want to look at a few things that I believe that God would have for us today, what we can learn and glean from this passage as disciples of Jesus. So it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed. And those who followed, they were afraid. And taking the twelve again, He began to tell them what was about to happen. See, He had done it already twice. This is the third time. And He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. He's obviously talking about himself. And they will mock him, spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Then James and John, two of the disciples, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be, shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard... That it was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. They called the blind man, saying to him, Now take take heart, get up, he is calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, meaning Jesus, on the way. Three separate scenes, all brought together by Jesus asking a question. What do you want me to do for you? So we're going to look at these, spend a little bit more time on Jesus with his disciples and teaching about servanthood, because that really is the overarching theme of the book of Mark and this passage, is what does it look like to be a disciple? Jesus has been teaching them all along the way. Here, he says to them very simply... You want to be a disciple? You need to be a servant. You want to be first? You need to be last. You need to put your pride aside and be humble. Think of others before yourselves. That's the lesson Jesus is teaching today. So it starts with the first couple of verses, 32 and 34. Jesus, for the third time, at least in the book of Mark, Jesus predicts His death resurrection and he does it in greater detail than he had ever before and why do you think that is because they're just about to get to jerusalem and they hadn't yet understood and i think we all struggle with that right with this idea that he spent three and a half years with these disciples and sometimes he looks at them and it's just like what knuckleheads these guys are they still don't get it And here we are we're just about to jerusalem where we're we were going to end up all the while and he's just telling them once again, pouring his heart out to them, look, this is what's about to happen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered up to the religious leaders and tortured. And he, he describes to them what it's going to look like and tortured and, and killed, he says, but then on the third day we'll rise again. So that's what Jesus does and he explains to them in detail what is about to happen for the third time. That's verses 32 to 34. But then we see something quite interesting. And I hope you picked up on this. Here's what happens. Jesus stops them. He sees Jerusalem. They're about to get there. And He says, Men, come here. I want to tell you again for the third time. Here's what's about to happen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered and given up and sacrificed and tortured. And, but He will rise again. And then what happens next, James and John, they say, Oh, okay, Jesus, we're going to ask you a question now. We just want you to do whatever we ask. It's kind of a disconnect there, isn't it? He just poured his heart out and said it was about to happen, and James and John say, Great. Can we sit at your right and left hand in heaven? Big disconnect there. Thank you. Jonathan just That's exactly right. And so you wonder... What was Jesus' reaction to that? Like, his heart just probably sank once again. Of course, he has love and compassion for them, and that's good news for us, right? And so they ask him, and they say, Jesus, we're going to ask you something. We just want you to say yes. Do you ever have your kids say that to you? Mom, Dad, I'm going to ask you for something. Just whatever it is, just say yes. It's going to be good. We don't fall for that, do we? Usually not. Well, usually what happens is they'll ask uh, the mom, and mom says no, and then they go and they ask the dad, and the dad says, "Okay, right?" That's what, yeah. Mm. And so John and James, they want a special dispensation; they want a special privilege from Jesus. Look at what they're thinking of is themselves. Jesus just said, "This is I'm going to suffer and die for you and for the sins of all mankind." waiting for their reaction, and their reaction is, what's in it for me? What do I get? And so Jesus, of course, has to address that. See, it's kind of understandable in a way, because the twelve disciples were promised positions of judging Israel in the kingdom, the future kingdom. It says in Matthew 19, 28, um, Peter said in a reply to them, uh, Jesus, we left everything and followed you. Remember this? We saw this in Mark a few weeks ago. What will we have then? And Jesus says, okay, truly I said, in the new world, the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, and you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So it had been promised them. But that was their focus. It was not what Jesus had to do. For them to get there, it was what's in it for me. I can't wait to get there to get my crown and be judging over the rest of Israel. Remember the disciples were even arguing who's going to be best in the kingdom and who's going to be first. They still hadn't learned that lesson. The disciples didn't understand the role of suffering that was required to lead to those rewards. It's like when we want all of the rewards without giving up anything. We don't ever do that, do we? It's like they simply wanted all of the good stuff, but they wanted to bypass all of the suffering. It's like you want that prize, but you really don't want to run the race. It's like, yeah, we want to win the Super Bowl, but can we just not play it? Because we're the Patriots, just give us the prize anyway, and we'll just, you know, kind of the attitude, you know, whatever. I think Steve already left, but that's okay. Okay. But see that disciples kind of have that you know that position, but Jesus is trying to teach them something that we've addressed before as well. First comes the suffering, and then Jesus, and then God will bless. There are rewards in heaven waiting for us, but let's not consider and think and act like we want all of our rewards now, because Jesus says about the religious leaders, all the rewards they got them already. Jesus says, there's so much waiting for you in heaven. Don't worry about being first here. Because he teaches them, he said at the end of the the message last time about the rich young ruler, the first shall be last. The last shall be first. It's about being humble and having the heart of a servant. So Jesus goes on to talk about this idea of, of the cup and the baptism. And very simply what he means is he's talking about his suffering and his death The cup that would carry his blood. The cup of suffering. And the baptism being completely overwhelmed in what he was taking upon himself. The cup of sufferings. He is only for him to drink for the suffering, for the sins of the world. And his baptism of death. But then he turns to them and he basically says, can you do this, what I'm about to do? And they said, yeah, we can do that. See, it shows again. They didn't understand. So Jesus then, he explains to them, and he says, okay, the cup of suffering, you will experience that in a way, and the baptism that I was baptized in, you will in a way, but I can't give you the privilege of sitting at my right hand or my left hand. That's only for the Father. Jesus even defers to the Father and says, that's for those whom God, the Father, has already prepared. It's not for you. He's telling them, don't be focused on that. But he does say, you will endure suffering. You will understand death. We know that James was beheaded by Herod. Jesus knew that would happen. John, you know, who went to write Revelation, was tortured. Tradition says he was boiled in oil, something like that. He survived it, and he went to exile in Patmos. Like, there was suffering. And Jesus acknowledged that. Yes, you will. But it's really not what you're asking. See, you have to ask the right question. When people ask you a question, it's important that you recognize what's kind of going on between the lines. Especially, you know, for us that are married, that's really important, isn't it? It's kind of like, not, you know, don't just listen to my words. What is it I'm really asking you? That can be really difficult. And sometimes you're just like, just tell me what you want me to do for you. <laughs> is that what Jesus says? It's kind of like with parenting, too, and you got a little kid and all crying, 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 red in the face, and they're asking for something. You don't know if they're hungry or they're hurt or they're dying or whatever, and you're just like, just tell me what you want. Use your words. And Jesus is asking them, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, and they asked. He says, no, what you're asking, I can't give that to you. So we move on. We see that, um, That yes, theirs would be the cup of suffering, but not the kind of suffering that he would endure, not for the same reason. But again, Jesus teaching his disciples is making it clear. If you want to be a follower of me, and this is important for us this morning, you will endure suffering. And it doesn't just mean uh, I broke my wrist, so I'm suffering for the Lord. He's talking about suffering because of your faith. Because you are a believer and a follower of him. And whatever that kind of persecution or suffering looks like in our context in this part of the world, in, in, in our society, in our communities, in our jobs. But Jesus did say, there will be suffering for a little while, then comes the reward. They still didn't get it. They wanted to bypass the suffering that Jesus just told them would happen. And as his disciples, he's basically telling them, you're going to have to follow You want to follow me? You follow, we're going to Jerusalem, going to the cross. You're going to follow me there? The disciples were saying, We're following you, but we want, what about those rewards again, see? The disciples, Jesus was saying, should be focused on serving others and not on personal glory. He says, The first shall be last. He says, Even me, the Son of Man, I have come to serve and not to be served. So as his disciples, we should act accordingly. That our mindset should always be on others before ourselves. Having the heart of a servant. And it starts right here, church. Aren't we told that the world will know us by a love for one another? How do we love each other? By serving each other. You have been given gifts. Spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit as a believer. You've been given talents and skills by God. To bless others. To help others. You know, we are a very generous church. There's so many people that do things behind the scenes. You'll never know the things they're doing. People are being helped. People in need are being blessed. Whether it's a small need or a great need, whatever it looks like. But we are called to do that for one another, to be servants of each other. Then when we leave this place outside of these four walls, the world should know that we are Christ followers because of our love and service for others but especially for the brothers and sisters in the church. Jesus tells them, don't be like the Romans. He says, you know, the the Gentiles, they have leaders. They lord it over them. You don't want to be like them, do you? They knew what it was like. They knew in their society what it was like to have bad, mean rulers, and the Gentiles, the Romans. And Jesus says, it should not be so among you. We are called to be different from the world, aren't we? When we spew hatred towards one another, when we act in a disparaging way towards one another, the world will see that. And that's the opposite of what Jesus is asking us to do. As his followers, have servants' hearts. Right? Don't be like the world in the way that they lead. Have compassion. I think the greatest quality of a leader is humility. It's Humility. But doesn't that just sort of go against what we are learning from the world around us? The greatest way to be a good leader of people is to be a servant. Is to have a humble heart. To think of others before yourself. It seems seems opposite of what we should do, but that's what we're called to be. But Jesus is teaching that. And finally, we get to the last section. So Jesus tells them, about his death and resurrection coming up again. And then he interacts with them because they asked, they answered his question, what do you want me to do for you? And they're just looking for privilege before the suffering. And then Jesus, of course, never passes up a teachable moment. And they're making their way, and it says they're on their way through Jericho, and there's all kinds of crowds, and there's a blind man. Now we've seen Jesus heal many people. He's healed lepers, and he's raised people back to life. And here is a beggar. His name is Bartimaeus, which basically means son of Timaeus. Bar-Timaeus, son of Timaeus. That's why it even says son of Timaeus. And he is blind, cannot see physically. Now, let's not lose sight of this. Where is Bartimaeus? It says he is at the side of the road. Jesus was walking down the road. The crowds were following him, heading to Jerusalem. And here is a blind beggar man named Bartimaeus. And he is not on the road with them. Not in the crowds enjoying the privileged view of Jesus. He is in the margins. He is at the side of the road. And so what happens is he is calling out because he recognizes, can't even see. He recognizes what's happening. That must be Jesus, the son of David, even calls him that prophetic name. And he simply calls out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Doesn't even ask yet, heal me, heal me recover my sight. He just says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he keeps persistently calling out to God because he has a need. Let's stop right there for a second. I think that's good for us to recognize as well. We should continue to bring our needs before God. It's in His timing, in His will, that He heals us and brings about the answers to our prayer. But very simply, we don't know how that works, but He works out His will through our prayers. We, as disciples, are simply called to pray. Pray without ceasing, pray consistently, and pray. Pray. It's not like we pray once, we don't get it, and we move on. Pray. We keep bringing it before God because He wants to hear from us. He wants to know our heart. But it's about us coming before God and communing with Him. And so we bring our requests before God. And so Bartimaeus, the blind beggar man, on the margins of society as it is, is calling out to Jesus for help. And there's all these other people who see they are sort of in the know. They're following Jesus on the path. And they see this guy on the margins of society. And what do they do? They try to quiet him down. Stop bothering us. We're with the master. Can't you see we're with the rabbi? Stop bothering us. You're a nuisance. Get out of the way. Get back to the side of the road. Be quiet so we can hear Jesus. What does Jesus do? He stops. It's beautiful. He stops the crowd. He stops the throng from going down the side of the road. And he simply says, call him. And so then, their tune changes. And they go, yeah, come on, Barnabas, let's go, let's go, let's go. The Master's calling you. It's like, oh, they didn't recognize Jesus was going to do that. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus cares about the marginalized in society? He has a heart for those who need healing. For the blind beggar who is cast aside by society. Jesus does not miss that. See, Jesus sees your need. He sees when we have a broken heart. Psalm 34 says He is close to the brokenhearted, And He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He says, that's a Jesus that we follow as disciples. He's the one that stops and recognizes someone in need at the side of the road and says, let's help Him. Let's hear what He has to say. Someone whose voice was trying to be silenced Jesus says, let's hear what he has to say because he matters. is that beautiful? So we should be thankful for that in our own lives, but as servants to the master and then servants to others and the society around us, we are to recognize the needs in this world and be considered of those who have been cast aside to the margins of life. Because Jesus does. And so he says, call him here. And so he comes out and again, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. You know what Jesus does next? He asks him a question. Same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And the answer this time is a little different. Can't you just picture it? And Jesus is not only trying to help this man who's blind, But he's using it as an illustration to teach all the disciples, especially John and James, and then the rest of them who were indignant that John and James kind of went behind their backs. It says they were indignant. It caused division. See, that pride in John and James caused division. We recognize that. There's division in churches. There's division in families. There's division and dysfunction in marriages and relationships with co-workers. There's division, and the root of it is usually pride. And that's what happened even with the disciples. Because the other ten came and they were like, what, what are you asking for this for? It's like they went aside and tried to do it before the others did, to try to get the privilege of sitting at the right and the left hand of Jesus when he gets into heaven, so the others are kind of like calling shotgun. Like, oh, we got here first. Caused division. But Jesus, using this teachable moment, and so he then asks that question. And what does Bartimaeus simply say? Rabbi, can I have my sight back? Rabbi, can you heal me? He respects Jesus, recognizes he's the one that could do it. And then says, restore my sight. And Jesus probably looked around, so everybody everybody was looking, paying attention. He says, go ahead on your way. Your sight's already been recovered. And at that moment he could see. But he didn't go away. What did he do? He then followed Jesus. So I'll end with this. So this picture, this last and third scene of Jesus healing the blind beggar Bartimaeus is really a picture of discipleship. See, he's about to go to Jerusalem. It's in a way kind of wrapping up his teaching to them about what does it mean to be a disciple before he gets to that last week of his life. And and he says, you know what it means to be a disciple? Be a servant. You want to be first and be last. Put your pride aside. Be humble. And so the picture of Bartimaeus is a picture of a discipleship. Why? Because Bartimaeus is outcast. He is on the margins of society, he is lost, has not yet been found by the Savior. But he hears his voice, even though he cannot see yet, spiritually, physically, he calls out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Doesn't even ask him for anything in particular, Jesus, have mercy on me. So, step one, he recognizes he has a problem and he needs healing. That's for us too. Step one, recognize that we have sin. And we need somebody to save us. So step two is, who is it that is able to save? So he calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. So step two is calling out to the one who is able to save and to heal. That is Jesus and him alone. The third thing we see is that Jesus listens. And he calls him, come to me. Come out from where you are, where you've been begging, come to me. So listen to the call of your Creator. If you have been hearing that call, but have been avoiding answering, what's stopping you? What are you waiting for? Jesus is calling. See, then the next step is it says He throws off His cloak. He springs up and runs to Jesus. Because he recognizes healing is available. It's being offered to him. He is being called to the Master. He doesn't waste any more time. He throws off his cloak. Anything that would weigh him down, he threw it off came to Jesus. It's about recognizing the need. Saying, I'm going to Jesus. I'm going to follow Him. And he comes to him and Jesus asks him a simple question. What can I do for you? He does that for us. At that moment, before we believe in Him for salvation, He simply is asking in a way, what can I do for you? Because we are then to recognize our need for salvation and then we come before Him and have mercy on me. And He says, can you heal me? Recover my sight? Isn't that what we want? Spiritually, we want to have sight again. We were lost. We want to be found. We were blind, but see, now we want to see. And Jesus is then teaching them, and then, of course, he heals them. He says, now, go on your way. But he doesn't. He goes on Jesus' way, becomes a disciple to follow him. And so Jesus, wrapping it up, he's basically teaching the disciples, see, you physically, you can see, and you're following me on the road. But spiritually, you're blind still. All these years you spent with me, you're still blind to what's about to happen. And the need that you have and the suffering that's going to take place. But here is a man who physically cannot see. And he's on the side of the road. But spiritually, he is seeking. Spiritually, he can now see. Because I have given him sight. Jesus doesn't pass up the teachable moment. So overall, Jesus spends these last moments before they get to Jerusalem training his disciples, once again showing them through his words, through his actions of healing, and asking the question, what do you want me to do for you? He is telling them discipleship requires humility and not pride. Discipleship requires serving others and not yourself. Discipleship requires following. Discipleship is not just moments or events or activities that you're involved with in the church that's all important but discipleship is a commitment to a life of walking with the Lord where he goes we go if he's going to death we must die to self to be a disciple when Jesus says you want to be my disciples take up your cross daily and follow after me see that's he's saying that to people that are believers already it's not how you become a believer he's saying to those who are already believers On their way to heaven, he says, now do you want to follow me? Take up your cross daily. Recognize there's suffering for a little while, but then there's the rewards. And Jesus is now asking, like he asks all of us, what do you want me to do for you? So ask yourself this, what are you asking God for if you're a believer? And what are you doing for others? As Jesus said, He came to serve, not to be served. See, real life is found in giving up your life for the one that Jesus offers you. It's wonderful how that works. We surrender our lives to God. He gives us a new life. We need to stop struggling in the fight to have our own program work out, our own plan, our own agenda. See, as disciples, we are to serve, and we've been called to, to be servants, to serve, thinking of others first. We've been given gifts, spiritual gifts, talents, skills, abilities, to help and to serve one another. And you know what? If we don't use it in a way, it will dry up. And we won't be as effective for God and His kingdom. I remember when, uh, when I first became a believer, I was being discipled by the very first pastor that I had. And um, I've told this story before, but we had a lady who was leading worship on piano and she moved and we were in this small church. And and so the day that she left, the pastor came up to me. I was 21 and he said, I hear you play a little guitar. And I said, I know about three or four chords and to sing a little bit. He said, good, because you're leading worship next week. Right? I've told that before. But his attitude was, you're either going to use it or you're going to lose it. God gave you the ability. We have a need, whether you think you can do it or not. It's like Moses saying, I can't talk, God. Okay, I'll give you Aaron. I'll give you some help. But the idea was you're going use it or lose it. And there's a story about um, this aqueduct. You know what an aqueduct is, right? It's built to carry water. It's this ancient aqueduct in Spain built by the Romans about the year 100. For 1,800 years, for 1,800 years, this aqueduct built by the Romans carried cool water from the mountains to the hot and thirsty city in this area of Spain. 1,800 years, this aqueduct, built to carry water, survived and thrived and did exactly what it was made to do. So nearly 60 generations of people drank from its flow of cool water. But then came the next generation, a recent generation, who basically said to this aqueduct, looking at it, saying, this is such a marvel of engineering genius and creation, we ought to preserve it so it doesn't fall apart. We need to preserve it for the next generation. Kind of create it like a museum. And so we don't need it to do its thing any longer. And so this generation laid out modern pipes to do what the aqueduct was created 1,800 years ago to do. In essence, they gave the ancient bricks and mortar a reverent rest, so they thought. But what happened next? The aqueduct started... To slowly fall apart. See, the beating sun on the drying up mortar caused it to begin to crumble because there was no more water flowing through it, which had been constant for 1,800 years. The bricks and the stone sagged and began to fall apart. What 1,800 years of committed service could not destroy, idleness disintegrated. See, so we are called to be servants. Servants. And God has blessed us. We are people of hope to bring hope and to serve others. Will you be a servant as Jesus is to us? He said, He has come not to be served, but to serve. May we, as His disciples and followers, take up that mantle as well. So ask yourself that question. Ask this question of yourself What am I asking of God? But then ask this question of others. What is it that I can do for you?